Father, we recognize that we have nothing that we did not receive and that every good and perfect gift has come down from you, the Father of lights, and that we have received grace upon grace. Lord, we have gotten that which we do not deserve, and that's you. And we have the promise of eternal life that when our eyes close in death, you will open them for us and we will see you face to face and we will become like you because we will see you as you are. Father, we pray that even now as we perceive things through a glass dimly, that you would open up our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it once again, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Yesterday I read an article by a pastor named Alan Duty, And in this article he shared an experience he had in sharing the gospel with a stranger that he met. And I want to read to you a little bit from this encounter that he describes in this article. He says this, He says, one clear winter morning, I was sitting at my favorite coffee shop, reading the scriptures and journaling. A man walking past my table noticed that I was reading the Bible and began to engage me in conversation. He shared that he was a member of a large church in our area. And he says in parentheses, this was a church that preaches the prosperity gospel. He shared that he was a member of a large church in our area and that he believed the Bible was primarily a book about God's intentions to bless us. I replied that the Bible is actually a book about who God is, who we are, and what God has done to reconcile us to himself. I began sharing the gospel and noted that Christians were promised suffering as a part of following Jesus. He responded by saying that as long as we have faith, God will bless us and keep us from suffering. I referred to several verses where God promises that believers will suffer ordinary trials as well as specific persecution. At which point he put up his hands defensively and said, I just don't receive that for my life. My wife and I had recently suffered a miscarriage, and I felt compelled to share that with him. I explained that when we encounter trials like those, we can't simply say, I just don't receive that for my life, and make them go away. I also shared the good news that Jesus has overcome the world and that he promises never to leave us or forsake us in our trials. Promises that comforted us in our suffering. I believe that my openness and the weightiness of my trial caught him off guard. So he quickly expressed his condolences and excused himself from the conversation. End quote. Now I wonder how many of you have had conversations like this pastor describes. You have an opportunity to share the gospel with someone, maybe somebody you know, maybe a family member, maybe it's a stranger. But in the course of the conversation, it becomes clear that they know something of the message that you're trying to communicate with them. They're familiar with the Bible. Perhaps they can even quote to you verses from the Bible. And at first, this seems like a good thing. But then you dig in a little bit deeper And you see that below the surface level Bible quoting, there are deep differences about what the gospel is. 
You tell them that Jesus died for their sins and that they can do nothing to earn their salvation. And they say, amen, because he died for me, I don't have to suffer anymore. And I can count on having great material wealth for the rest of my life if I just have enough faith. Or perhaps you tell them that Jesus died for their sins and that they can do nothing to earn their salvation. And then they say, well, I'm not so sure about that. Don't I have to do good works in order to be right with God? You know, the Bible says faith without works is dead. And so as you get into the conversation, you find that you may be using the same vocabulary, but you're drawing from two different dictionaries. What you label as good news is interpreted as a promise of material prosperity. What you label as gospel is taken to require good works in order to receive. Or perhaps some other error or departure from the gospel, that they, they, they are talking in those terms. And so the result of the encounter is conflict instead of conversion. They know just enough Bible to make them dangerous, but not enough to make them saved. They have just enough of the truth to make them feel secure, perhaps, but not enough to convert them. They've been inoculated with a false gospel, which keeps them from being infected with the real gospel. When they hear it and they don't know it, but their spiritual immune system is so darkened by a false gospel that they fight against the true gospel whenever it is set before them, whenever you set it before them. These are experiences that probably many of us in this room have had. And when you are in the moment, it seems to be intractable. If you haven't already, I want you to open up your Bible to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 15. What we find in this text is Paul confronting the Corinthians over their anemic understanding of the gospel. Now, at one level, ostensibly, they agree with Paul's description of the gospel that he preaches to them. But they are doing something that implies otherwise. So the good news about Jesus' resurrection from the dead is really under a cloud of suspicion. And we'll be seeing that very clearly as we move through chapter 15 in the coming weeks. And so Paul is aiming to clarify the exact nature of of the resurrection, what it is, and how the Corinthians are falling short of it. But in these first 11 verses, before he gets into all of that, he spends these first 11 verses reasserting what should be common ground between them. And what's supposed to be common ground is the gospel. And so what we're going to do this morning in these first 11 verses is look at three things that Paul says about the gospel. He's going to talk about what the gospel requires... In verses 1 and 2, what the gospel is in verses 3 through 8, and then who the gospel saves in verses 9 through 11. So the first thing is what the gospel requires in verses 1 and 2. Everybody look at verse 1. He says, Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand. Now, right off the bat, it is so clear that Paul is interested in talking about the gospel. The gospel. What does this mean? Now, the gospel comes from that Greek word some of you have heard, euangelion. It's where we get our word evangelism from, right? 
Uh, it means literally good news or good message. It's not a word that originates with Paul. It's not even a word that originates with Jesus. In fact, the term reaches back to the Old Testament, to the promise of the return from exile in the Old Testament, which itself is linked with the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel in the coming new creation. So that's why we read from Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 9 earlier in the service, because it is a text in which you have an explicit use of the term gospel in the Old Testament. Isaiah 49, Oh, that thou bringest glad tidings to Zion. Glad tidings is the word gospel. Go up on the high mountain. Lift up your voice with strength. That Thou that bringest glad tidings to Jerusalem. Lift up, fear not. Say unto the cities of Judah, Behold your God. And so the bringing of glad tidings is the very same terminology for preaching the good news that we have in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 1. It's an announcement that God is coming to his people to save them. And that's the way that it is in 1 Corinthians 15. Except that in, in this chapter, Paul sees this gospel as the fulfillment of all of God's saving promises as realized in the ministry, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the profound thing as you look at the way Paul talks about this. When he talks about the gospel, he looks at the Old Testament promises about good news, and he says, that's all about Jesus, what he did, death, burial, and resurrection. So it's this gospel that Paul seeks to remind them of, the text says. Except that in, in your translation, the ESV, it says remind. The word there actually doesn't mean remind. It just means to make something known or to reveal something. In this case, it's something that he has made known to them before. That's clear because he says, I'm making known to you the gospel that I preached to you. Which means I've actually visited you before. And we know from Acts chapter 18, Paul was the one who evangelized the Corinthians. He came to Corinth. He stayed with them for a year and a half. He evangelized them. He made known this gospel to them. And now he's saying he's doing it again. And that raises a question for us. Why is he making this gospel known to them again? Aren't they already saved? Didn't they get saved when he came into Corinth the first time and stayed a year and a half with them? Why do they need to keep hearing this gospel? Why do they need to hear it again? Well, the reason that they need to hear the gospel is the same reason that you and I need to hear the gospel again. The message of the gospel is not a message that we receive in order to get converted and then we move on to other information. If that's the way that you're thinking about the gospel's work in your life, you are thinking about it in the wrong way. The gospel is not merely for getting us saved. The gospel is for keeping us saved. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 13, And for this reason, we also constantly thank God that when you received from us the word of God's message, you accepted it not as the word of men, but for what it really is, the word of God, which also performs its work in you who believe. Which means this. Paul believes that the message that saves us is the very same message that sustains us. 
We never graduate from the gospel to other things. It is our lifeblood and it will be that way until the Lord returns or until we die. And that is why Paul describes the gospel in verse 1. Not only as that which we receive, the Corinthians received it, so also we receive it, but it's also that in which we must stand. And it's interesting here that Paul uses the perfect tense, which means he's describing something that happened to them when they received it. They stood in the gospel, but it has ongoing results, which means that they stood in the gospel when they received it and they continue to stand in it as Paul writes to them. And then he says something absolutely remarkable in verse 2. He says, and by which you are being saved. Now, perhaps it sounds just a little bit strange that Paul would describe being saved as if it were an action in progress, but that's exactly what he's doing here. Why would he do that? I mean, after all, isn't salvation something that happened to us in the past tense whenever we first trusted Christ? Well, that's true, but that's not the only thing that is true. Salvation is not merely a past tense thing in our lives. Salvation has a beginning and a middle and an end. It has a past, a present, and a future to it. Yes, it is true that we were saved from the penalty of sin whenever we first believed. But the Bible also teaches that we are being saved from the power of sin throughout our lives as Christians. And it also teaches that we will one day be saved in the future from the presence of sin altogether when we are glorified. If your salvation does not have a beginning and a middle and an end, then it is not real salvation. If all it has is a beginning and there's no middle and no end, no ongoing aspect to it, no future hope in it, then you didn't actually get the beginning of it. The Bible teaches that we are works in progress through the powerful presence of the Holy Spirit of God working inside of us to transform us into the image of Christ. And yet, look carefully at what Paul says. He says, this is the gospel by which you are being saved. We are being saved by something, he says, in the present. What is that something? Well, the by which is referring back to the gospel. God is using the gospel right now to not only to save, but also to sanctify his people. Our ongoing renewal in Christ can only happen as we come back to this good news again and again and again. The gospel is that in which we stand and it is by which we are being saved. Which means that you and I never outgrow the gospel. We will never come to a point in our lives when we no longer need the message of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners. We need it day in and day out and week in and week out and year in and year out and over the decades. Why? Because we are sinners. And that is the only way that renewal is going to come to us as we are constantly coming back to this message. It's why we come to this table every week. As often as we do come to this table, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Why do we do that? Because we have to keep preaching this message to each other. 
It's why we expound the scripture every week. The word of God's truth. Because that is where we find the gospel. And we need to encounter Jesus in the gospel every week. We need this because our wayward hearts need the message to hold us and to keep us. This is the message by which we are being renewed. And without it, there is no renewal. So Paul says that we, there's a sense in which we are being saved by this message. But look what he says in the second part of verse 2. He says, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Now, this is the part that really ought to make you snap to attention. It's here that Paul explains what it means if someone who receives the gospel fails to stand in the gospel. The gospel can only bring salvation to us if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. That means if you don't hold fast to the gospel, then it is not saving you. And your faith is not a saving faith, but a dead faith. Because you believed in vain, it says. Which means that you have believed unto no purpose. Or without laying hold of, that, of the salvation that faith is supposed to lay hold of. That means that the only saving faith is a persevering faith. The person who believes in Christ and then turns away from Christ is a person who has failed to hold fast to the gospel word and who has believed in vain. Paul's saying those people are not saved. The only people who are saved are those who have a faith that perseveres. Why is that? Well, because the Bible teaches that God is the one who works within saved people, causing them to act and to will according to his good pleasure, it says in Philippians 2.13. If God is not doing that ongoing work of renewal in someone, that is evidence that he is not within them. And if he is not within them, then they aren't being saved. You see the logic here. So imagine this. You got a horrible diagnosis from the the doctor of cancer. But the doctor immediately says to you after this diagnosis, listen, The form of cancer that you have is extremely respondent to chemotherapy. In fact, the particular form you have, of every person who's ever taken the chemo regimen, it's 100% effective to eliminate the cancer. And so the cancer is there, it's deadly, but there's a chemo regimen that's 100% effective. And over three months, you're going to have to come in six times for this. Well, what would happen... If after he tells you this, there's immediate rejoicing, you show up for your first first chemo regimen, it stunts the cancer, stops the growth, but then you don't show up for any more. Are you going to live as the disease continues its work in your system? You are not. The lack of perseverance means that the disease is going to win in the end. Now, every analogy, if you press it in the details, is going to break down at points. But the gospel of Jesus Christ really is like that, in a sense. 
It's not something that you take one time and then you move on to other things. It is something that you dose yourself with throughout your life or else you will be overtaken by the poison of sin and judgment. It requires perseverance or else you can and will fall away from its healing properties. You need to live the gospel, read the gospel, listen to the gospel, hope in the gospel. Avail yourself of the means of grace that God has given you in this church and in this fellowship, which is pointing you to the gospel. It is your life or it is nothing at all. So exactly what does this gospel require? Paul says it's the message I preach to you and it's the message I'm making known to you again. It requires preaching. And then after it is preached, it requires faith on the part of the one that it's preached to. And then after it is believed in, it requires persevering faith, perseverance. That's what the gospel requires. It must be preached, it must be believed, and it must be persevered in. But the second thing is this. Not only what the gospel requires, but what the gospel is. Everybody look at verse 3. Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Now as we look at these three verses together, I just want to say this up front. If there is a place in all of the scripture where you could say, hey, this is the perfect, compact summary of the gospel if there is a place that does that anywhere in scripture it is this place if somebody says to you like we say in our membership interviews um, could you share the gospel with me in 60 seconds or less if you say those words right there that's the gospel this is the heart of it as far as paul is concerned and this is the summary of all of it and what i want to do is for these three verses i want to point out six different characteristics that we observe in what the gospel is. And that first characteristic you see is that it is preeminent. And you see that in the words that Paul says in verse 3, for I deliver to you as of first importance. First importance. Which means that of everything that Paul taught the Corinthians and of everything that he's teaching us through this book, there is nothing more important than the gospel. Nothing. It doesn't matter what else you get right. If you get this message wrong, then everything else is wrong too. This is of first importance because to fumble this is to fumble salvation. There is no authentic Christianity apart from the gospel rightly preached and rightly believed. So the first thing Paul says is that the gospel is preeminent. We must get this right. The second thing that he says is that the gospel is apostolic. And you see this in the words at verse 3 where he says, For I deliver to you what I also receive. Now, you need to know that the language that Paul is using here, the language of delivering and receiving, is stock terminology in the first century among ancient rabbis for the giving and the receiving of authoritative tradition, which means... The rabbis received traditions, teachings that were given to them by previous generations and that were considered to be authoritative. 
and that they were supposed to keep. Paul is now accessing this language and saying that he's received authoritative tradition from others before him. And in this case, it looks like he may be quoting from an ancient confessional formula, an apostolic confessional formula. So Paul is is not talking about what has been handed down to him from rabbis, but a message that has come down to, to him from the apostles. Now, we all know that Paul had received a direct revelation of the gospel on the Damascus Road in his encounter with Jesus in Acts chapter 9. You read in Galatians, uh, he's clear that he didn't receive his gospel from anyone. But it is also clear that after he received the direct revelation from Jesus, he went and compared notes with the apostles in Jerusalem. And he became familiar with the traditions that were coming down from the apostles. And what did he say in Galatians about this? We were preaching the same gospel. And so as Paul is about to introduce this gospel message here in the rest of verse 3 and in verses 4 and 5, he's accessing the apostolic tradition and handing it down to the Corinthians to show what the gospel is. And the bottom line with this is that this shows that the message that Paul preaches is in keeping with the other apostles. He is not out on a limb here. He's not making this up as he goes along. The gospel that he received directly from Jesus is in keeping with the apostles. So if Paul's message is in keeping with the apostles, and he himself is an apostle, that means that the message that you and I teach and share with others had better be in keeping with the apostles as well. Which means it is possible for gospel testimony to become corrupted. Some people can drift from it over time. They think they're holding to the gospel, but they're not. Which means we have got to be steeped in this word because it's holding us fast to the message, which so often becomes corrupted around us. Our gospel needs to be apostolic. It needs to be in agreement with the scriptures. So Paul says the gospel is preeminent. It's apostolic. The third thing, it's an event. Notice Paul's words in verses 3 through 5. He says that Christ died, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, and that he appeared to Cephas, who's Peter, right? The apostle Peter. He appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Notice that the gospel we believe is the announcement of events that are focused on the life and ministry of Jesus. And in particular, it's the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, the the two main parts of this are the death and the resurrection part. The burial is mentioned after the death because it bears witness to the truthfulness of the dying, right? The appearances appear after the resurrection because it's bearing witness to the truthfulness of the resurrection. But the core of the story is the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And you can see that those two parts are the parts that are in accordance with the scriptures, Because they were predicted in the scriptures. So if your gospel presentation doesn't include the death and resurrection of Jesus, it's not the gospel. It has to have those events in it. So the gospel's preeminent apostolic event, also fourth, it's biblical. We saw this already. Paul says Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. He was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. The two chief parts of the gospel narrative, the death and resurrection of Jesus, are both 
in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures. That's what Paul's referring to when he says scriptures. There's no New Testament canon yet, just the Old Testament. He's saying that Old Testament is bearing witness to this. The death and the resurrection of Christ are prophesied in a number of Old Testament texts. Perhaps the the death of Jesus is most prominently set forth in Isaiah 53, where it says, beginning in verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Now think about this. This is 900 years, nine centuries before any of these events unfolded. It's predicted. It's spoken of in the Old Testament. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. 900 years before the death of Jesus, and this is being spoken in the prophet. And that's just one text. I think you can see Jesus' resurrection also anticipated in Isaiah 53. If you look at verse 10, it says this, When his soul makes an offering for guilt, after this person dies, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. How can a person prolong his days after he is dead? There's a resurrection in there. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide with him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. He dies, but he's making intercession. He dies, yet he receives an inheritance. There's a resurrection in there. Jesus' death and resurrection are not God's plan B. They are plan A from before the foundation of the world. And that plan was prophetically disclosed centuries before the actual events took place. So Jesus' message, the gospel, it's preeminent, it's apostolic, it's an event, it's biblical, fifth, it's personal. Notice it says, Christ died for our sins. Did you catch that? Paul says, Christ died for our sins. If this part weren't true, then none of the rest of it would matter. Christ's work wasn't simply a set of events that happened in the past that are interesting to us and they're inspiring. His death and resurrection were fundamentally for us. And they fundamentally accomplished something for us. The text says that Christ died for our sins. This means that Jesus' death actually accomplished something. It means that Christ died in the place of sinners and took their sins upon himself in his death. He is taking a penalty that we deserve upon himself. That we should have paid ourselves. And so Paul expresses this truth here. He expresses it all over his writings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf 
that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Christ died for the ungodly, it says in Romans 5, 6. Romans 5, 8, while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Christ did what he did for sinners. It was personal for sinners. Are you a sinner? If you are here this morning and you can say before God, I am a sinner. And you can agree with God that being a sinner is wrong and that it alienates you from him. And if you can turn from that sin, this message is for you, sinner. It's good news for us because it's for us. The penalty that you deserve, he has taken upon himself. And then he's raised up to offer you eternal life. Death doesn't have to be the end of you like everybody else out there is thinking. We are just here for a minute and then we're gone forever. You are not going to be gone forever. You are going to be forever in one place or another. And you will either be in a place of judgment in the presence of God's wrath forever or you will be in a place of blessedness in the presence of God's mercy forever. And so you have to choose whom you will serve. But this is good news for us because God has made a way for us to know him and to be reconciled to him. The last thing we'll say about the gospel, it's preeminent, apostolic. It's an event, biblical, personal. It's historical. Notice he says in verse 5, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12. Now, um, I'm not going to be able to I've got a good bit of material here on all of these uh, post-resurrection appearances that I'm not going to be able to explain. But there are a number of appearances, if you read through the Gospels, where Jesus shows up. Sometimes he appears to one person. Sometimes he appears to um, some of the apostles. You remember the appearance that he had where Thomas wasn't present? And then later Thomas was there. Okay? So here he says he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Obviously, it couldn't be the literal 12 because Judas was dead, right? So Judas wasn't there. So probably the 12 is just a stock phrase referring to the apostles. There's an example of the 12 being used that way in John chapter 24. Um, But it's saying that he appeared to Cephas, then to the apostles. It says he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, which means... Some people say, oh, yeah, sure, sure, he appeared to all these people. They were hallucinating. No, 500 people don't have the same hallucination at the same time. He is saying that he appeared to a lot of people at once. They're eyewitnesses of this. And Paul says, as I'm writing this, most of these guys are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. So some of these guys is not. But Paul is writing this about two decades after Jesus' resurrection, and Paul is saying, some of these people are still with us. They'll tell you what they saw. 500 of them. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, which probably means, well, James is Jesus' half-brother, wrote the book of James, leader of the church in Jerusalem, very respected. Then to all the apostles probably means there was a time when he appeared to all the remaining apostles all together. And then verse 8, last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. 
So the last thing Paul mentions here is his own encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road. It says it's, he, he is one at, who is untimely born. It probably is more likely it means something like he's abnormally born. And it's abnormal because it would have been totally unexpected for somebody like Paul, a Pharisee, and a persecutor of the church to come to faith in Christ. And yet, he did come to faith in Christ. He got to see Jesus with his own two eyes. And so the gospel's preeminent apostolic, it's event, biblical, personal, and historical. Sometimes it is missed by those who even identify as evangelicals. It is missed what the true meaning of the gospel is. We sometimes have ways of speaking and communicating that actually leave out crucial aspects of what the gospel is. We must be very careful here. Just imagine this scenario with me. Maybe it's a scenario you can imagine because you've seen or been a part of it. A parent comes to me, says to me, Pastor, my eight-year-old child wants to meet with you about getting baptized. And I say, okay, yeah, let's, let's meet. And I sit down with the parent and with the child, and I say, little Johnny, why do you want to get baptized? And he says, because I don't want to go to hell. And I say, yes, but Johnny, getting baptized doesn't keep you from going to hell. It won't save you. You have to accept Jesus into your heart. In order to be saved. And so he says how do I do that? And I say all you have to do is ask him to forgive you of your sins. And then ask him to come into your heart. And so we kneel and pray. And Johnny asks Jesus to forgive him of his sins. And to come to, and for Jesus to come and live in his heart. Then we set up the baptism. And all's well that ends well. Right? Well, wrong. What do I fail to mention in my gospel presentation to Johnny? My so-called gospel presentation. I told him Jesus forgives. I told him he needs to invite Jesus into his heart. But I never mentioned anything to him about the death and resurrection of Jesus. And Johnny never mentioned anything to me about the death and the resurrection of Jesus and what it means. Perhaps I was assuming that he already understood all of that, but that's precisely the issue. You cannot make assumptions that people know the gospel, especially the part about the death and resurrection of Jesus and the part about what our only proper response to that is. It's to turn from our sin and repentance and to believe. That is the only response that connects us to the saving power of the gospel. If you leave that out, you are leaving out the very thing that Paul says is of first importance. And you are leaving out the part of the message that actually saves. Don't assume the gospel. What is assumed in one generation will be forgotten in the next. If your gospel proclamation does not contain at its heart the announcement of Jesus Christ crucified and raised for sinners personally, then it is not gospel proclamation. And if it's not gospel proclamation, nobody will be saved. And there's no consequence more grave than that. Now, I've got a whole other point that I will have to save until the next time. 
We're talking about what the gospel requires, what the gospel is, who the gospel saves is the last point in verses 9 to 11. This is where Paul talks about how the gospel saved him. So let me say this by way of conclusion. Paul never ceased to be amazed that the gospel saved him. Paul viewed himself as the greatest of all sinners. He did not view anybody else's sins as worse than his own. The reason he thought that was because he was a persecutor of the church. And he always felt that it was just astonishing that Jesus would come to him. You remember what Jesus said to Paul on the road to Damascus? Saul's on the way to persecute Christians, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus took it very personally, what Paul was doing, and it's like Paul never forgot that. When I was going after these people, I was going after Jesus. And so Paul is astonished that the gospel could come to a sinner like him. That's what verses 9 and 11 are all about. If you're here this morning and you are thinking, how could the gospel come to a sinner like me? You need to know you're not the first person who's ever had that thought. Um, The gospel is not made for good people. There are no good people. I'm not good people. These aren't good people. (laughs) If you knew about them, what God knows about them, you would agree, okay? If you're here and you think, I don't know how the gospel could be for me, it is for sinners. It's for people who've become convinced that they don't know, that they're sinful and they're lost and there's no hope. But there is hope in Jesus. And there is nothing that you've done that puts you beyond his grasp. If you would believe that he died for you on the cross and that three days later God raised him from the dead and offers you eternal life, not because of anything you've done, but because of what he did. If you would repent of your sin and believe in that message, the Bible says that God will save you. Last thing I want to say this is to members of Kenwood Baptist Church. We know what the gospel requires. We know what the gospel is. We know who the gospel saves. But do we really believe this gospel that we say we believe? If we do, is it not the best news in the world? If that's the case, what's keeping us from sharing it? The president of the Southern Baptist Convention, J.D. Greer, has put a challenge to all Southern Baptists, and I think it's a good one. It's one similar to what Jim has put before us in here. But Greer's challenge begins with a question. Who's your one? He's challenging every member of every church in our denomination to find one person that you are going to pray for and to pursue evangelistically. He says, who's your one? Imagine if every member of your church could answer that question with the name of a person. How would it change your community? I just want to think about how it might change our church. I was convicted by this as I was reading this and thinking about this. Um, I've, I don't have a one now. I have a two. And both of them are hard cases. And if you ask me, I will tell you who they are so that you can pray for them. I want us to be able to come to one another and be able to say, who's your one? 
and you be able to say, this is who I'm praying for. This is where we are in our, our gospel conversations. Every member of Kenwood, we ought to be able to do this. Who's your one? If the gospel is what we say it is, the best news in the world, then this is the kind of intentionality that we need to cultivate. Let me pray for you. Father, I do pray that you would use this word to, love, to make us love the gospel more, to make us love our gospel-needy neighbors more. And Lord, I pray you would help us not to be timid, but to be faithful and bold, to see the gospel go forth. And Father, I pray you would make it so that we could bear fruit, fruit that will last. Lord, I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know you, who's not a Christian, I pray that you would open up their hearts to believe the scriptures. Lord, I pray you would move them to come and talk to me or to one of the other members here at Kenwood to confess that they are coming to trust in Jesus. Lord, would you awaken hearts and minds even now. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.